Christina Halfpenny is the executive director of the Design Lights Consortium, the DLC. She is also our guest on episode 7 of the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. This episode was recorded from the DLC's annual stakeholders meeting in Portland, Oregon at the beginning of July. Before you listen to this episode, I think you should know that Tina Halfpenny has not had a career selling light bulbs, light fixtures, or light sources anywhere in the channel. She's not your typical lighting person. She's a facilitator. She's an executive. And what the organization she leads is trying to do, in my opinion, is enhance their accreditation so that lighting professionals generally agree with the standards and that the standards also work for the utilities rebate programs. I'll let the episode speak for itself from here out. But first, I would like to remind you that this podcast is the official podcast of the stakeholders who make up the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. You should join us, and you do that by visiting naild.org. That's nailed.org. This podcast is sponsored by one of my favorite nailed vendors, Keystone Technologies. Keystone is a manufacturer of lighting equipment that sells through distribution. If you would like to become a Keystone distributor, or if you're someone that just wants to get their hands on some Keystone products, visit keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Remember, they just came out with their ballast bypass, line voltage, T5HE and T5HO LED tube replacements. Why go line voltage with T5HE and T5HO? Well, the fixtures already have the unshunted sockets you need. You simply disconnect the ballast and run the line voltage right into the sockets. You don't have to worry about compatibility. You don't have to worry about ballast failures. None of that. Keystone's got them. They got them in 2 foot, 3 foot, and 4 foot. All the color temperatures. Visit keystonetech.com or email t5 at keystonetech.com. So without further ado, I give you Christina Halfpenny, the DLC's Executive Director, on Episode 7 of the Get a Grip on Lighting Podcast. So welcome to the Get a Grip on Lighting Podcast, Tina. Thank you. Say Glad hi to, to be here. Yeah. Hi, Greg. Hi, Tina. Thanks for coming. So I th- what most of my listeners want me to ask you is, what does it feel like to be the most powerful woman in the lighting business? <laughs> wow. Well, I wouldn't know. But uh, I am impressed with the kind of influence that the DLC and the DLC membership has in the lighting industry. We've done some... We've done some analysis of what the impact of incentive programs have had and the QPL requirements, and it's been pretty significant. I mean, we've seen a 50% increase in the average efficacy of the products listed on our QPL over the past five years. Yeah, I mean, that's big. Mm-hmm. And then when you think about the utility, I'll call it infrastructure, so the efficiency design infrastructure and the breadth of influence that it has with service territories across the country and in Canada, that's a, that's a huge success in terms of energy reduction, adoption of SSL technology. We're pretty happy about that. Who does the DLC serve primarily? 
That's an interesting question, and, and truthfully, I think a lot of the people here at the stakeholder meeting would have different answers for you, but I would say it's a combination of both the utility efficiency administrators as well as industry. I don't know if you heard my opening comments this morning, but I said, you know, everyone here at this conference is a stakeholder of ours. So we do have members, and we're working very closely with them to develop tools and to address some of the challenges that they have with their, their particular programs. However, if we were to just do that in isolation without industry's input, we'd probably get it wrong. Mm -hmm. And if we didn't have industry's participation, if they weren't getting their products qualified, our requirements wouldn't really have any impact. I don't know how the right way to ask this, but do you feel any resentment from other lighting industry bodies or anything like that at the DLC's um, rise and sort of resentment towards the power the DLC seems to wield now within this business? Do you feel any of that? Yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. Sum it up. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I, I, you know, I can appreciate some of it. Um, it's interesting because, you know, I think there's kind of two factors. One, no one sees what we're doing at the back of the house, kind of filtering out a lot of the fraudulent business practices that we're seeing. Is, is Brady Nemeth in charge of that? Is that his purview? The Brady Nemeth is in charge of the surveillance testing. So what we're doing there is we're pulling products off of the list and we're testing them to be sure that they actually perform the way that they have reported to us that they will perform. Have you seen a lot of issues with that? Not yet. No, okay. No. But on the, what's, so what's this uh, fraudulent side? Jim mentioned it as well. Right. Uh, what, what are you describing there? Like what is it that people are, you know, not doing the testing and submitting products or what is it? There are some instances where um, private label agreements are forged. There's a lot of misrepresentation of product out there. So the kind of the easiest thing to do is say, yes, this product is DLC qualified. And look, we're going to put a JPEG of the stamp on our spec sheet. And, you know, it's actually never gone through the process at all. But then there's some more, you know, kind of nuanced ways of um, misrepresenting the product where the product spec sheet or some products on the spec sheet will be qualified, but what they're trying to sell the product for is a very different application. So now are there any consequences to this? If, if a company comes out and is constantly lying? Are you, yeah, Tina you, slaps them on the wrist. Well, can you shut them down no. from being a DLC qualified at all? We do, yeah. And you can take companies and say none of, none of your products, even if they meet it, we're not going to put a DLC label on it? We do do that. Oh. And, and you send them serious letters saying do not use our logo and this sort of thing any longer? Yeah, unfortunately, we have a firm that is dedicated to doing that for us out of D.C. Hmm, how are those decisions made? Well, the violations are typically pretty egregious. Okay. Depending on how severe the representation is, and, you know, that's pretty clear if they're putting a stamp on something that's never even been submitted for qualification. Yeah, the intent is to deceive. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. So we'll start out with a letter. And in some cases, we don't know who the manufacturer is. So, uh, you know, a lot of cases, it's innocent mistakes. And we'll just kind of talk through what the process is and what the expectations are. In other cases, we know who the manufacturers are. We've, we've had to deal with it a few times. And we will just, if there's already product on the list, we'll pull it off the list will suspend them from any kind of future applications. Is that for a time period or is that indefinitely? Depends. Okay. Definitely yeah. depends. <laughs> like we're, we're done with you for everybody after this one. You know, that's pretty tough. I mean, they're going to be out of business in this game. If, if you can't slap that DLC Gucci suit on your product, I mean, that's what Randy Reed was complaining about on the last podcast, mm -hmm. was that regardless of efficiency, 
the DLC has transitioned them into the, in themselves as a brand all on their own, Tina. Like DLC is a lighting brand that is maybe more powerful than the mandate of the DLC. Mm, yeah, it's an accreditation for sure. Um, and we do, we are seeing that more and more even outside of the utility programs, but it builds trust. Mm. It's a verification of performance, which is a pretty helpful thing to have with a relatively new technology that is proliferating at the rate that SSL is in the market. Sure, it's a, it's a tidal wave of transition. It is. And I, I, I do think DLC, so when you're... Um, when you're making decisions, so we're now, we're distributors, we're now holding stakes. What do we yeah. do with those stakes, Tina? What do you think we should do as distributors to influence DLC policy? Ooh, so much opportunity there. I tried to tell you guys last night, but you ran away from me. Because <laughs> um, I guess you wanted me to say it today. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, the utility see distributors as a very significant partner in what they're trying to do. You know, I don't know if you were there for the opening panel this morning, no. but training and education it's just manufacturers and utility administrators who understand what, number one, the objective, and number two, kind of the transition to this new type of lighting, and not just SSL, but also the controls and the network systems, we're not going to be able to do it. We're not going to pull it off. It's got to be the distributors and the installers who are really kind of a driving force to this. Mm -hmm. And everyone recognizes, you know, I think some of the utilities are pretty good about connecting with distributors. And I think some of the distributors are pretty good about getting more involved. But, you know, it's a lot of them are small businesses and we recognize it's hard. So we're all trying to figure out how do we create those connection points? I've got a good idea. I think that I think part of the problem is that the utilities are interacting with the distributors in a way that they're going like Greg, he works a lot with Excel Energy in Minneapolis, yep. right? Okay. And they'll go to Greg and they'll ask him a bunch of opinions on stuff. And then they'll come to the DLC convention and they'll say those opinions. And I think it's better just to bring Greg and have him at the convention. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I think it's better to, instead of the distributors working through the utilities, and this is what this thing with Brady and coming to our convention and us here today yeah. is all about, I think the, the distributors need to be at with the DLC as, as a voice and not through the utilities. Does that make sense? Because I, I think it really impacts our, our business. Like Jim was telling us that you have an inner circle advisory panel and he's on it industry advisory i got some really good people that I, not me or greg but some really good distributors i think that would be worthwhile to have on that panel that are very knowledgeable i can think of three right off the top of my head mm -hmm. but that are members of nailed and been in this in the game a long time that might be worthwhile for you to have would you consider bringing a, a, a nail distributor into that inner circle not only would we consider it but we it was originally in the plans for the iac okay we just started the IAC, Industry Advisory Committee is what that stands for, last year. Okay. Um, and we wanted to keep it small so that it was productive. Sure. Mm -hmm. We did reach out to lighting designers, which is not necessarily a core audience of ours. But, yeah, we talked about distributors. We don't have connections as of right now. I mean, the nail partnership that we're trying to set up is, is pretty new. Mm -hmm. So. How many people are on this panel right now? It's small. It's, uh, I think it's 13. So you've got manufacturers represented? We've got the six, what we call the six largest manufacturers represented on our list. Okay. And then we went out We went out for an industry vote, and that was, was an interesting process to manage. 
We tried to identify medium-sized manufacturers by number of employees, small, medium. So I think the maximum number of employees was... 25 or something. Let's say 100. I'm not quite sure. I can't remember. So we did did an election. iLighting, MaxLight, and Digital Lumens were all voted in. We have two controls manufacturers. We have Leviton and... Lutron? Lutron. Thank you. And then we have two lighting designers, Jason Renoni from the East Coast, Jim Benyu from the West Coast, and they were self-nominated lighting designers. And they raised their own hands. Yeah. So it's designers and manufacturers at that point. At this point, there yep. aren't any utility companies involved in the. No, this is okay. industry only. Now, do you? How do you interact? How does the executive director? That's your title. Correct? How does the executive director interact with this group? Um, I'd like to think that I manage this group. You manage it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm I'm the chair. Are you like a facilitator? Yeah. All right, and then yes. how does how do those meetings go? Are there arguments? Are there blowouts? Are there? Uh, no, it's a it's a nice small um, collegial group. Okay. We'll send out. You know, we have a charter on the website. We'll send out an agenda two weeks ahead of each meeting. We typically get feedback from the representatives on what they'd like to talk about. Generally, we, my team, the DLC team, is putting together the content and we're presenting. There's some pain points that they have brought to our attention, like predictability of what you're doing, transparency of what you're doing. Those have been you know, strategic planning in a transparent way. Those have been topics that they just keep bringing back to us. You know, how else are you going to address this so that we can see when the DLC is creating a new spec or, you know, if you're going to create a new category. We need to know this. Mm. And we need to know when because it does affect our product design cycles. So that's been a huge takeaway for us, and that's something that we pretty quickly implemented into you know, our planning process. Now, the, the qualifications to be DLC, are they mostly defined around energy efficiency? Is that an okay statement to say? Well, there is a lumens per watt qualification. There's also criteria around CRI and CCT, lumen output. I think that's more what I'm getting at is that it, it seems like the energy efficiency piece is taking over. Everybody's going to be in that market, or everybody is making efficient products. Product, but now the quality sides where the color can come in and that can take away from lumens per watt, for example, as you increase the CRI. So you're going to have new characteristics going forward to help with this? Yeah, that's a big part of what we're talking about in this conference. So, you know, what are the things that we need to be considering so that we're not solely focused on lumens per watt? As we're growing more and more scale, we're not creating high efficiency products that just aren't well received. Okay. Particularly when you're talking about the additional functionality that lights can do now, I mean, with the color tuning and field adjustability, and truthfully, the potential of the things that I don't even know what they are yet, we need to be able to be flexible to allow all of that without losing the efficacy. And as far as the the numbering system, uh, we talked a little on a previous podcast on 4.0. What's the next step going to be? 4.1 or 5.0? We have a 4.2. We dealt with a couple of categories with 4.2. We'll have a few more iterations of the version 4.0. 4.0 essentially relates to a, a certain efficacy level. Mm-hmm. So our, our versions, the, the .0s, are efficacy changes. And then everything in between the 2.0, the 3.0, the 4.0, those are just kind of iterations based on that. So they're new categories, new policies. 5.0, everyone's been asking us because we just had a huge push with efficacy with 4.0. So everyone wants to know what we're doing with 5.0. We are going to have a 5.0. It's likely not going to be a huge push in efficacy, but we have kind of some big technical challenges to tackle 
like, you know, what's the transition point look like between SSL, integrated controls, network systems? You know, we've got this network system, network lighting control QPL. We have our SSL QPL. How much longer can we go before they're actually in conflict with each other? And what can we do to bridge them? How do you feel the control side of things? How are you going to define what is DLC qualified from a control standpoint? We were talking a little bit before on that too. But if a control turns it on and off, that's not any more efficient than another control that turns it on and off. You mean like an integrated control in a luminaire? Yeah. I don't don't know yet, and I won't probably be the one making those decisions. (laughs) She's the facilitator, Greg. Come on. Um, The uh, sunsetting of products from the QPL. For distributors holding stock, mm. this is a bit of a sensitive issue. Okay, sunsetting or delisting because they no longer qualify. Yeah, delisting. So okay. call it de- is that the better word? Delisting. Yeah. Yes. So the delisting of products is a problem when you're sitting on inventory. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what would happen from a distributor is you could have made a purchase of say um, now the the manufacturers know when these products are going to be delisted. That there's a they know when that, mm-hmm. that date's going to be. So say it's July 2018, this is going to be coming off the list, right? Mm-hmm. From a distributor, I always thought that that date should be on the box of the product. Oh, interesting. Right? So I think you're sabotaging your brand a little bit. And this is, sorry, I hate to say that, but maybe that's the wrong word. But I think it's a sabotage when you, when, you know, someone, a consumer or like people in non-lighting people know about DLC. But they don't know that much about it, right? So you could be selling a product, say, yeah, it's DLC, but actually isn't DLC anymore, right? So I think you, when manufacturers are labeling products and cut sheets, the expiration of that, the delisting date needs to be on the label that goes but on. But they the don't page. know when the, that's going They be. do know when it is. Mm-hmm. They know it in advance. We do. So 4.0 is an example. We released 4.0 June of 2016. 4.0 became effective April 1st of 2017. So we knew what 4.0 was going to look like. We knew what would qualify. We didn't, it actually, it took us months to go through the list to figure out what wouldn't qualify. Right. But, you know, as of April 1, once we once we had that list, we reached out to manufacturers to say, your, your product no longer qualifies as of April 1. Are you aware of this? We're, you're going to be delisted. Many manufacturers came back and gave us updated information so that they could roll into the 4.0. A lot of them didn't, and they just they just rolled off the list. Yes, yeah, I think manufacturers aren't as hard hit though because they're it's the distributors that are holding the stock. Yeah, because they're not yeah they're not making it anymore. Yeah. So yeah, so they're like it's almost like manufacturers they want a true manufacturer does not want to have a warehouse full of stuff they've made. They yeah. want to sell it right away, yep. right? Or if they're importing it, they want to get rid of it quickly to distributors. I, I would like to see a system in place where I it's very very I'm very aware and the customer is very aware what what the status of this DLC qualification is on this product. But you don't always know that is my point. Is right now 4.0 is out there, but we yeah. don't know the end date of 4.0. When's the end date? We don't know that. Well, we could say the end date is going to be June of 2018. I'm just giving you an guessing. example. Of that. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing. So. But that doesn't mean that everything qualified by yeah. 4.0 is not going to qualify for 5.0, for example. So we lost 110,000 products out of the 4.0. Holy mackerel. 110,000. We, we had 275,000 on the list. So we lost about, 40, uh, yeah, about 40% of the list. So there was still a lot on there that already qualified. 
or you know qualified. So maybe it's not a date. Maybe you say review this status on this date. Mm-hmm. June thirtieth is the mm-hmm. review date for this product. This is its number. Yeah. And then so people are can get oh I just go to this website and type it in, but it's on the product as opposed to a spec sheet you got to dig up. Oh I don't have that spec sheet anymore because we haven't sold that in two years or right, right? and right. I can't find the information with the requirements table. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a manufacturer thing, not DLC though. The manufacturer is the one that has. To well, be I think the DLC should tell them they have to do it. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Hmm. I don't know how that benefit them, but sure. Benefit wouldn't benefit, benefit them at all. The distributor. It'd benefit the distributor. Benefit the distributor. I'm holding my stake up high. I'm holding my stake up high. It would be helpful, I think. Mm-hmm. You tell me. You're the distributors. If we did have some kind of an announcement, maybe it was with Nailed. Hey, you know, new requirements changed June one. You know, there's going to be big changes to the actual QPL April one. Is Last it on minute. your radar? Yeah. I mean, getting it on the radar is the first step. Yeah. And then honing that radar, making it more accurate or whatever is a step two, but for sure. like, I mean, uh, until about, until I started doing this podcast, to be honest with you. Oh, DLC put the rebate application in, bam, bam, do it. And, but, you know, yeah, I just bought 10,000 four-foot T8-2s and put them in my warehouse. And, oh, yeah, it's DLC, bam, put it in there. Let's sell the stuff. And then the 4.0 came out and... I'm sitting on this in inventory. Mm. I'm thinking, hmm, what the? Grab, where's the product sheet for that thing? Well, can we sell this in the UV rebate program? And then the, the value of that stock instantly drops by 70% or 80%. Mm-hmm. And I'm left holding the bag. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, I hear it. So it, it's, a, it's a bit of a conundrum for distributors, I think, uh, who are holding inventory. Is the DLC have any, just to change gears, a little more sensitive topic, is the DLC have any plans to switch their tax status from not-for-profit to for-profit? No, sir. Okay. We just established as a 501c3 Gen 1 of this year. Okay. We did some soul-searching. So I came on about two and a half years ago. The NEAT board hired me to say, this DLC thing is totally out of our scope. We're a regional organization. You know, we do market transformation. This thing just ballooned. We think we want to spin it up. What does it look like if we do that? So we did have to do some soul searching because lots of people were saying, you could sell it to Phillips. You could have a venture capitalist buy it. You could, what was the, what was the other idea? You could turn it into like a UL. But that's not, that's not why we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Why are you doing this? Our mission is truly to accelerate the adoption of SSL technology. I mean, we're, we're environmentalists. There's huge climate solutions here. There's huge economic benefits with this technology. We don't want to leapfrog some of the future potential there is with controls by just doing as much as we can with SSR and luminaires right now and lamps. The benefits are far-reaching with this technology. I don't think you guys expected your brand to be so valuable so quickly. No, that's true. You know, I think that's the problem is that IES looks at it and goes, the DLC brand is more powerful than the IES brand. Like, I, I think they say that. I think, I, I, maybe I'll cut this one out, but no, I, I, think I, think, I think the DLC brand is just outside of lighting circles. Just, you know, people that are, you know, he's an LC, I'm not, right? But I just don't like taking tests. <laughs> I like doing podcasts. <laughs> but um, I don't think those people were ready for how fast you charged into this void. Mm. Does the DLC need a competitor? Well, I wouldn't put IES and DLC as competitors at all, but something that happened with the DLC is the end user recognition of it. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it is significant. I've got some of the national accounts reaching out to me now saying, do you guys realize how much your requirements... Do you offer training? That, no, uh, that, no, no. they're not. That's, what, that's what's happening. They're not looking for, for training. They're saying, your specs affect me and what I'm oh, putting in my facilities, and I'm not participating. I'm not giving you any feedback. 
You know, mm. I'm, I'm Target, I'm Amazon, I'm Whole Foods. I want to be able to participate in this because the lights that I'm putting in my building have to be DLC if I'm going to get any kind of rebate for right. it. Puts you in an awkward position. Not really. Every, yeah, everybody's after you, though. Everybody wants to be talking to you and telling you, no, it needs to be this way. No, it should be this way. I think there's a. I think that what's emerging is that I think you were you were there to serve the. This is my opinion. Okay, I think you were there to serve the utilities, and then you ended up sort of nudging people out of the way in the lighting business and becoming a force. I'm not sure it was purposely planned that way. It just no, kind it of just morphed happened. Into that. Yeah, it just right. happened. Who do you think we've morphed out of the way? I think I think the IES has ceded some ground to you guys, and, and just in terms of brand status, in terms in the lighting business. When I came in the lighting business, the IES was the bomb. That was the organization that ran the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of lighting people were traditional lighting people were hesitant on LEDs in the beginning, and not wrongfully so. They were mm-hmm. hesitant to jump in because they didn't feel like it was ready. If you listen to Randy Reed's podcast, I think he points it out. He get, he used to give the finger to LED fixtures when he saw them, like. <laughs> Like that's how we were in this business yeah. when it started. And I think we were, you know, a lot. I think some of those organizations were late and you guys right in the void and charged in. And now you're there. And, and I think it's interesting that it's the business has changed and DLC finds themselves in a position that has a lot of responsibility and affects this business a lot downstream. Mm. Is it a lot more challenging now than it was two and a half years ago when you started to facilitate the DLC? Uh, yes, I think so. Probably one of the biggest reasons is because the market's grown so much. Uh, you know, we have millions of data points on that QPL. Just trying to figure out how to host data, that much data, in a way that people can search for it and not be Amazon, because everyone we talk to says, can I just search for my model number like I do on Amazon? Well, we're not Amazon. Yeah, you don't have the resources. Yeah, Mm-mm. for sure. Yeah. But in terms of your, your point on IES, I, I think we're totally different entities. Um, yeah. You know, and most of the people on my team, at least the ones that need to be, they're all LC. They're all on IES subcommittees. They're all waiting for, I shouldn't say they're all waiting for, but there are standard updates that they are interested in seeing and they're working on and they are heavily involved in the IES stuff. So they would, my team would certainly defer to IES. They would not agree with you at all on that. I don't know if it's agree. I just think brand status in the market. I think from the outside, yeah, I'm sure you know people are uh, LCs and you know they're using that education they got there. But this, it's a it's a new force in the business, and I don't know if people know what to make of it. Like traditional lighting people, how they interact with it. I mean, we were talking to a, another woman last night who was you know complaining about the LC and how it affects her business. I think it's an interesting in a changing dynamic energy efficiency world. I'm kind of going on on this a little too long, maybe, but yeah, I think I think it's an interesting force in the business that wasn't there two and a half, three years ago. Do you guys deal with Energy Star at all? Sure. Have you have you had to? It's the same problems. We have the same sort of issues with Energy Star, not knowing when products are. They have like labeling the expiration date. Yeah. So Energy Star would be useful mm-hmm. as well. So, but they they were better positioned to do this. They could have done the same thing you guys did, could they not have? Yeah. Do you know why they didn't do it? Resources. Oh, resources. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, we started the QPL as a New England resource. California said, we'd like to use that. And then the Midwest said, that'd be really helpful. And then Canada said, hey, we could use that too. And then, you know. But these are utilities, right? These are utilities for QPL, just using it for qualification for incentives. Hmm. Do you know what percent of utilities around the country use DLC or have that as part of their requirement for rebates? I don't. I actually 
I don't even know what the universe of utilities are. There's no resource like how big for that, it is. is there? Like how many utilities there are, you mean? Yeah. You know, the Northwest is an example. NIA is really kind of the, they're the umbrella resource or the umbrella administrator for the utilities in the Northwest. And then there's a there's a ton of them. And NIA represents Idaho, Montana, Washington, and Oregon. So we largely work with NIA, but it's not not clear how many utilities are under that. I know Texas has a very similar mechanism. Minneapolis has something very similar. Ontario has the IES. Ontario has IESO. Yeah, IESO, sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. So w- wouldn't you guys want to have every utility participate? Wouldn't that be something that the DLC should look at, or is it not really in the plan to try to get everybody on board as far as utility comes? The largest utilities are on board. Already? Yeah. But the, you don't go reach out to them. They come to you, right? Or do you go into to different utilities and speak to them about their efficiency programs? Some of them we do. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it, it's sort of an interesting thing because we have this resource. All of that data is made publicly available. Our technical requirements are publicly available. We develop our technical requirements in a public forum. You know, we have these stakeholder input processes where, you know, we'll have multiple drafts of the proposals out there, and it is wide open. We have webinars, you know, and we welcome the feedback. So in some cases, we'll get a little heat in a situation where there's a utility using the QPL, but they're not a member. So they're not familiar with when the specs are changing and there's a delisting and then in that area the delisting happens, no one knew, manufacturers, distributors, you know, lots of people are upset. So those those kinds of things can be problematic. Do they need to be a member to say on their paperwork that the product must be DLC qualified to qualify for a rebate? Do they need no. to be a DLC member? No, we would prefer if they were. Right. Yeah. I mean So the reason to be a member would be to have a voice. To have a voice and know what was going on. Sure. It's not just the QPL. We do a lot of work with utilities in terms of facilitating utility groups and building tools. You know, on the control side, we've got a lot of stuff under development. The data project that we talked about this morning, just kind of building a resource of average energy savings by building type from these network controlled systems. It's hard to build an incentive program when you don't know how much the energy savings are. So that data set should really help. We're building savings calculator Very difficult to, to assess energy savings post-project on controls. It's very difficult. I did a big push before in the days of T8 retrofits, so before there was a DLC. I made a big push into lighting controls um, on my company, and it didn't go so well. We tried our best. We worked hard. But we used to use these little data loggers where we would put them up mm-hmm. and it would measure how often the space was occupied and how long the lights were left on for. Mm-hmm. Right? And then you'd go download this data and you could have a look at it and all that sort of stuff. But that was only for two weeks, right? And you'd do that. Oh. Right? Okay. You, you wouldn't do it post project. I'm sure you, with the integrated controls, you'd be able to measure a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is the right question for you, but if, if they were able to report back how often they were off, that would be interesting as a measurement and verification tool for controls. Like a DLC control have to be, would have to be able to be interacted with in a way that it reported back how often it was turned off or how much energy savings. We would love to figure out how to incorporate energy monitoring into the network lighting control spec. Mm. Yeah, I think it's very important. I, 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 you know, wattage consumption, say like this fixture was dimmed down to 50% for six hours on Tuesday, for eight hours on Monday, and this is the energy savings that translates into. 
right? Kilowatt hours and cost or whatever, right? You could, I, I don't see why that would be unreasonable to ask for at all from controls. I think that's maybe the most important thing you'd want. Did you see the panel this morning? Sure. On It was a good one. Um, but what they have found doing this data collection is in some cases the operating hours are twice what they thought they would be. Oh, so sure, that baseline yeah. is 2,000 hours, but because of the energy monitoring, it's actually 4,000 hours, which means the savings are that much greater, sure. which means, you know, when we switch that out, your incentive is going to be greater. Yeah, I mean, the, the ISO does not have high incentives for lighting controls right now. Are you guys planning to help them change that? Likely the reason, I mean, I don't know for everyone, but there's just not a lot of solid evidence on what those savings should be. Sure. That's what this data project there never is trying will be. to do. There never will be. Every facility is different, and the characteristics of that facility are different. Well, so that's what we're trying to map out right. by building type. So we're putting in the operating hours, we're putting in all of the different tough. parameters. You're in a tough spot eh, with that. That's, tough that's to going to be a out. tough one. The other thing that we're doing is building a savings calculator with all the building input so that we can start to project ahead of time. We can make some estimates on what the energy savings would be. But you know what? If we don't start with these two tools... you got to start somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I've actually done um, performance contracts where we measure the energy consumption after and I take a piece of the energy savings for yeah. the client. Uh, I had a few clients that would not change anything unless that was how it was done. They would not believe in the energy savings at all. Right? So we had to figure out ways to do it. Sometimes we would put a revenue grade meter on the lighting circuits mm -hmm. and measure it, subtract it. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Pour, pour, pour. Sometimes we could do it from hydro bills depending, or electricity bills depending on what type of facility it was and how they used energy. So if you're tempering glass using electricity, you're going to have a hard time finding any lighting in that because the, 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 some processes use so much electricity that it dwarfs everything else in the building into like 1%. Of mm -hmm. the so you can't use a bill. So you have to meter it. I think it, there's a lot of different kinds of facilities that are going to just throw you guys for a loop, the way they use electricity. Well, these are these are not coming from the meters. These are coming from the, the, the devices, the control systems. Right. Yeah. They won't know that information until after they're implemented. So how do you incentivize them up front? So That's a great question. The report is helping us to build some averages. So okay. you can build some assumptions into mm. what those savings might be. Gotcha. So a utility would say, okay, we're gonna win on this one and we're gonna lose a certain amount on some types of buildings and we're gonna so we're just gonna incent them all like this, knowing that the average will come out like this. And then they do their EM and V a year later and they yeah. see how close they came. I mean that's how they do most of the most of the things that get incentivized for energy efficiency, they're, they're what they call deemed savings. Okay. So they make yes. an assumption on what those yes. savings are, and then a year later they go back and measure it and see how mm. close they were. Shouldn't they be able to, if they've already, like the utilities already have the buildings metered. Like, they should be, and, then, and like Ontario, it's all smart meters, so mm -hmm. they have real-time data coming from the meters. Yeah. Shouldn't they be able to see these savings on their own without, like, shouldn't they be able to see it right yeah, there? Yeah, so you did a lighting retrofit in the auditorium, but you didn't do it in the office yeah, space. So. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. It has to be bigger projects, huge impact projects. Yeah, and meanwhile, you just added 20, 20 employees to, sure. you know, your production sure. crew over there. And it was a hot summer. Yeah. So yeah. the AC was running strong. Right. Yeah, HVAC savings is even worse. Lighting is at least a little bit easier to measure. You don't have to factor weather into it. So on HVAC, these guys are like have weather factors right. yep. based on 
how hot it was or how cold it is and they're measure, when they're measuring their savings. Like That seems really tough to do to me. It is, and the savings are hard to achieve too. On the energy data panel, you know, we talked about the building level data coming from the network lighting systems. We also talked about energy savings coming from code. And then the opening speaker talked about, there's a new EPRI report that just came out on savings potential. 57% of the savings potential that they're projecting is coming from commercial lighting over the next few years. Lighting's always the best when it comes to like performance per dollar spent. And it's also the most easily adoptable environmentalist thing to do is to fix your lighting. It's mm -hmm. so easy to do in comparison to other things. Like generating your own energy can get dicey. HVAC is a lot tougher, I think, to get massive savings in. You're gonna, the building's going to be too hot or too cold. Right. So what do you guys think, what do distributors think of network lighting systems? I mean, is that... We were talking a little bit about that with Jim Bainio before. Uh, Mike, Michael said he was scared. Yeah, I'm I said scared I'm a little it. scared. So the, the issue is that, you know, a lot of times we're in this to try to sell a good quality system. But then when you implement controls, in the past at least, there's been a lot of issues with it. Mm -hmm. And then the Tennis. lighting's great, yeah. but now the, the control part of it's screwing it up. Yeah. So now you just added some more problems to your plate that maybe you didn't want to deal with. Mm -hmm. So you, the distributors are dealing with that or the installer or sometimes it's the Both. same? Both. So yeah. Most of the time it's the same now. Yeah, it's works. the same. We're involved in turnkey type of mm -hmm. thing. But, I mean, if you want to have a problem with a job where you have to go back afterwards, put in, like, a complicated control system and you'll, you'll be, be back, back. there <laughs> yeah. back on a regular yeah. basis. And I would say that we're going to have a podcast on this. In my experience, most facility managers have absolutely no idea how their lighting control system works. Like, they, they don't even... Maybe they know how to shut things off and on, but they have no idea what's in there and how it works and... Capabilities. Capabilities and... Right. and or when it defaulted back to... Yeah, yeah. the factory setting. I mean, right. Yeah because it was a uh, crashed or something. When it comes to lighting controls, I always go, maybe we don't sell them. Just just take it off for now, and if they ask for it, we'll put it back on. Right. You know, because it's complicated, man. And, it is, and cause it is. It, and if, it depends on the, on the quality of your installer, too. You know, if he doesn't know how to really uh, commission and calibrate a passive infrared sensor correctly, people are going to be in the washroom, the lights are going to go off when they're mm. in the stall. Mm. Right, the, you know, um, in the stairwell. In the stairwell, you can't do it in stairwells in Ontario. I think it's oh. against the law. And in some buildings, some building types, you can't control stairwell lighting. Egress lighting has to be set to minimums, or so you're, you got You can dim it, I guess. So you the question on controls is always going to be: Do the problems outweigh the savings? Or the yeah, savings outweigh the problem? Mm -hmm. Well, that's what we're trying to make sure that the savings outweigh the pro well. The no, 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 no. Let me let me take a step back there. That we figure out how to address the issues yes. so that controls are just a lot more <laughs> smart controls are dumb you know like the, yeah. you know you just make them easier right. the facility people can figure it out the installers can figure it out whomever's involved in that knows what this thing can do and can figure out how to install it mm. right. i think they need to take ls controls and just to do a little bit of housekeeping here this is the official podcast of the national association of innovative lighting distributors visit naild.org i also have to say that the opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the national association of innovative lighting distributors but they should be i think <laughs> <laughs> i think you know just in general I want to say something on it. I, you, you do get some negative press from the DLC or people talk about the DLC as a negative, but I see a lot of positive in it, personally. I, I like the science behind lighting still, and I feel that that's lost some importance with the energy efficiency. So that's why DLC, I think, has, has filled that void, and, and it's been necessary to kind of filter out some of the stuff that kind of screwed up the industry in a way, or can potentially screw it up. So I like where it's going, and I like that you guys are hearing feedback and doing conferences like this. 
So for some positive news on that, I wanted to chime in. Yeah, chime in, in chime <laughs> yeah, in. No, we, sure. we you know, what I, I uh, thank you for having us, by the way, at your Absolutely. convention. Yeah, yeah we really I'm appreciate glad you could come. Communicating out is always challenging, right? You know, I think the most direct form is to try to email people, but you can't guarantee people are going to read their emails. You know, right. we can put everything on our website, but who's going to the website? Even if they're going to the website, they seem to go straight to the search page on mm. the QPL. But with that said, we strongly encourage people. Unsolicited proposals, feedback, we're taking it because we know that what we're doing is affecting a lot of people. Mm. And we don't want there to be unintended consequences because we're missing some people or we're not seeing some pain points that might be developed. I mean, that's why we have this. We're a small team. We're a team of nine. Yeah, yeah. You you don't have a lot of people. We don't. Yeah, it's a very welcoming organization, I'd say. It is. Absolutely. Okay. Good. I think that's a podcast right there, buddy. Nailed it down. All right. right. Thanks, guys. Thank you for coming on, Tina. Folks, whether or not the DLC is serving the lighting industry is still an open question. And I will let you come to your own conclusions. But I will tell you this. They are great people, and they are most certainly open to new opinions and suggestions. If you're a distributor or you're selling light bulbs to end users, and you want to have your voice heard, Why not consider joining the stakeholders down at the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors, Nailed.org. Of course, you could always do it all on your own, but as you can see, there is a power in the association of like-minded people who carve out priorities and present them in unison. Like it or not, that's how you get things done, Nailed.org. I would like to thank Tina Halfpenny for being so welcoming and taking the time to speak with us. Also, a shout-out to Brady Nemeth, Fritzy Piper, and the rest of the people down at the DLC for putting this thing together. And of course, we can't forget Keystone Technologies for sponsoring the episode. Visit KeystoneTech.com. Remember, T5HE, T5HO LED tube replacements. You got the sockets already in the fixture. That's right. Those unshunted sockets are already there. So visit KeystoneTech.com or email T5 at KeystoneTech.com. Thanks for listening.